This episode of the RPG Academy is brought to you by GMLoot.com, because GMs need loot too. Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight, sir? Greetings and salutations, Michael. I am doing better than you. Yes, yes you are. I am a little bit under the weather. We, We were supposed to record this episode last night. And we even got online, and we were, like, just getting ready to start. And I'm like, dude, I don't feel good. And you're like, dude, you don't look good. And I'm like, jackass. And you're like, no, not like that. I mean, like, different than your normal not looking good. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so we ended up just, like, not recording, which I'm glad we did. didn't because I did not feel good at all last night. That segment brought to you by a 14-year-old girl. There were a lot of likes in that sentence, man. Come on. That, uh, that was teenage girl talk. Cool beans. Totally. But this is going to be episode 79, The Wrong Side of the Tracks. But before we get into the episode, we want to take a step back, as we always do, and talk a little bit about why we're here. So Caleb and I like to use these episodes of Table Topics to give some advice that he and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the advice we give and the opinions we share may not be applicable at every table, every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. That is our motto here at the RPG Academy, that no matter what game you're playing, what system or edition, or what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, then you're playing the game the right way. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and move into the first thing we want to talk about, which is not a catacon. Yay, I win. You're welcome, guys. I know you're surprised about that. But actually, we wanted to do a little bit of a Patreon shout out. So I, I, I will own this 100%. This is a Michael thing. We have neglected to give some shout outs to some of our recent patrons. This is something that we've wanted to do and we made a, a promise to do. Uh, and we've missed a couple people. And, and part of that is uh, we went a while without having any. And then we had a bunch that kind of hit us all at one time. Thank you all very, very much. But that is no excuse. So we are going to take a couple seconds here, and we are going to thank each and every one of our patrons for their patronage. So, Caleb, do you have that list pulled up, sir? Oh, I absolutely do, Michael. So let us give a great big RPG Academy thank you to the following fine folks. NPC cast, Lucas from City of Brass, Clancy, Adam Waite, James, Eric, Randy Aitken, Scott Hudon, Jeremy Van Shallywack, Jason Bauer, Travis Stewart, Simon Zed, Melissa Evans, Pateri Tuterian, Mundangerous, Lisa Slack, Rob Abrazado, Rich Howard, Josh Wilson, Jared, and Aaron Tomes. And I very sincerely apologize to whoever's names I absolutely butchered, but I tell you, it would have been better than M- Michael doing it. 
100% better. I, it wouldn't even got close. I would have screwed up Stuart, and I know that, dude. Thank you, Caleb, and thank you guys ever so much. If if we have not done enough to to show our gratitude and our appreciation, please let us take this small moment to do so. There are so many cool things that Caleb and I are getting to do and we are working on, and that is a direct result in you guys supporting us, not only just by listening and commenting, but you also have taken the time and the initiative to send us some money, which still to this day kind of freaks us out a little bit that, that people do that. But it is very much appreciated. We thank you for it and uh, tell your friends. All right. So now we want to move on to talk a little bit about a catacomb. Yeah, you weren't, you're not going to ever just get used to it. Every single episode, we're going to talk a little bit about it. So we've already announced we have a couple special guests that we've already talked about. Rob Schwal, Rich Baker, and James D'Amato all have agreed to come hang out with us and play some games. Uh, we are negotiations the wrong word but we are talking to a couple other people that we hope will eventually agree to come out and play with us as well but again even if no one else says yes those three guys is going to make it an an amazing event but we're still doing some planning we're still trying to figure out what's going to go on and and what we're going to do and um, we have had some pretty amazing support and we wanted to take a special a moment to give a special shout out to our currently biggest sponsor and that is Michael over at 1D6 Gaming. Now, this is a pretty much a brand new game store that opened in Oxford, Ohio, which is right next to where our event is going to be. Uh, he just, you know, it's just one of those things. He happened to open a game store nearby. Rocky, who you know from our episodes of The Dragon Moon and a couple other of our actual plays, lives in Oxford. Saw the place, went over, just started chatting up the owner. And next thing you know, he wants to, like, Totally take care of us when it comes to a Catagon. He has pledged uh, some monetary support. He has already donated a substantial amount of product that we are going to be able to give away as part of our raffle. He's going to give us some additional merchandise uh, up until the time that the con happens. If we decide to make any purchases of gaming supplies for the con, he's going to allow us to do it through his store at a discount. Uh, So absolutely, uh, he is helping make a Catacon bigger and better and we wanted to say thank you so much so if if you're local and you listen to us and you're anywhere in the cincinnati area please take a moment to check out 1d6 gaming up in oxford if it's not too much of a drive follow them on facebook follow them on twitter uh, and show them support because they are absolutely taking care of us and then i also wanted to give another shout out to uh, lucas friend of the show and patron who also uh, runs the City of Brass website, which just recently launched their successful Kickstarter. The betas came out this past Saturday, and um, he is going to offer some subscriptions as prizes that we can give away at the raffle. And they are also looking at offering everybody who buys a ticket to a Catacon a discounted rate to join City of Brass. So they are going to take care of us as well with some donation and products so we haven't worked out all the kinks on that yet but i believe that's something we're going to work out and i just wanted to thank uh, lucas and the team at city of brass for what they're doing i've been playing with the system i am a beta tester and i actually do really like it and i've been putting our notes from our module that we're writing in there and it is definitely helping me organize my thoughts so uh, right now city of brass is a big win in my book any other uh, catacon news from your side caleb uh, no, nothing specifically from me. Uh, we are working kind of full steam ahead at this point. We are finalizing the plans of 
all of the pricing for the tickets for the swag that you folks will be getting. Uh, we're putting together the details for the Kickstarter. That will be the engine for moving this thing forward. Uh, I, I think we're at moving at a real good pace right now. I think we're trending to be very successful uh, with this first venture into a legitimate gaming convention. So uh, I know you folks are going to get sick of hearing about it, but we're going to have a lot of fun with this. So just uh, bear with us and uh, get ready for a really fun time in November. Excellent. All right. So with that, we will move on to our actual topics. And we have a couple things that I wanted to talk about. And there's the potential that these might come across a little bit negative. That's not necessarily the intent, but we're going to cover some ground that could be seen that way. Um, and the reason I want to talk about this is I've seen this come up a couple times recently, and I think these are issues that could uh, derail uh, a gamer campaign, pun intended. So the first thing I want to talk about is railroading. And I know we've touched on this a couple times before, but um, again, I, I look at Reddit often, and I see questions and comments that come up all the time about railroading. And it seems to me that there is some still semblance of a misunderstanding about what an actual railroaded adventure is and why that's so bad. For me personally, I like a little railroady tracks in my games. I, I don't think that I would truly enjoy a completely open and sandbox game. And I really don't know that that exists. To be perfectly honest to you, even someone who's the most amazing DM GM in the world, the secret kids, they're still making stuff up. Like it's still just whatever they've created, whether that's by themselves, something they've stolen from other media, or even if it's a, if it's a collaboration between them and the players. But let's say you started with a completely blank slate and you don't have anything created and you ask the player, well, what do you want to do? And as a player, you're like, well, I think it'd be interesting if there's like a, a thieves guild in the town and they're getting more and more aggressive and they're starting to make uh, travel throughout the city dangerous. And, you know, people are hiring bodyguards because they can't get from one side of the town to the other. OK, that is something the DM may not have considered, but now they're going to make stuff up about that. They're going to create the thieves guild. They're probably going to create the NPCs. They're going to create the guild master. They may come up with why they're doing it. And they're going to allow your, your players to interact with it, but they're still just making it up. And again, I'm getting off topic already of what I wanted to say, but the point of that part of the story is that I don't think that a completely true sandbox game can exist that would be fun. Because unless your players have all read tons and tons and tons of lore, which I know there are tons and tons of lore out there for like Forgotten Realms and other settings, they, as players, don't know all the things that their characters would know that would allow them to interact with that world without any sort of prompts. You know, as a person, I'm pretty familiar with my local area and some national politics and world politics. So I kind of have an idea what's going on. So I could sort of self-regulate and self-direct what I want to do on a day-to-day -day basis. But if I was suddenly transported as myself into a make-believe world like Narnia, I don't know anything about Narnia, so I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know who to trust. I wouldn't know where to go. But if I was born and raised in Narnia, I would. I would know those things. So I think that's where there's a disconnect between what players should know and do versus what their characters should know and do. 
So that's a long way to get to the topic I want to talk about. And then as always, I'll, I'll throw it over to Caleb. So what I'm trying to get to, the point I'm trying to make here about railroading. So for example, let's say that as a DM, I've decided that I'm going to start my party in prison. They're going to start in a jail cell, you know, kind of classic trope. They don't have any weapons, equipment, or armor. And their job is to break out of that prison. I don't view that as railroading. Anything that's the setup, I think, is perfectly fine. As the DM, I can do that, and I have no obligations or moral qualms about saying, okay, you guys are going to start inside of a jail cell or on a slave ship or here or there or whatever the case may be. That's all prompts. I think where you run into danger is when you say, okay, well, they're going to be in jail for three days. And then after the third day, there's going to be a prison riot. And during that riot, their jail cell is going to get left unlocked. And that's where they're going to be able to escape. If I do that as the DM, then anything they try to do for those first three days, I'm going to have to shut down and say, oh, no, you know, if you try to incite a riot, no, that doesn't work. You try to break out. No, you can't get away. You try to steal weapons. You can't do that. You try to seduce a guard. That doesn't work because I've already decided that you're trapped until the third day. That to me is where railroading becomes a problem because you're taking away the player's agency and not letting them make decisions that are meaningful to the story. They're basically just passengers in your story car until you get to the point that you've already decided something happens. If you're going to do that, then you should just say, you're all in prison. You've been there for three days. There's a riot. What do you do? And at that point, I'm okay with it again, because once you've turned the story over, once you've done all the setup and now you've laid the story out to your players, that's when they take control and they should start having agency in the story. So does that make sense, Caleb? Am I explaining that well? Uh, in a very roundabout way, yes. And if any of our listeners know how to translate Michael into uh, English, I, I think they've gotten the point. However, I think before we dig into the good points that you did have, let's go back to the beginning and actually define what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about what it, the term means to railroad a plot. Very much like the name implies, a railroad plot moves forward at a set pace and hits set events automatically. The best example uh, and the easiest example to picture in your head if you're trying to wrap your head around this uh, is an old uh, on-rails shooter. So if you grew up in the arcades and you would play the old... Uh, cop game or Area 51 or any of the House of the Dead games, the game just pulled you forward. You didn't really choose what hallway to walk down. You didn't choose what doors to open. Things just happened, and you as a player reacted to it. You got to a boss fight, you fought the boss. You met an NPC, the NPC talked to you. You didn't choose anything. You had no impact on the story. You were just part of the story. So in a role-playing game, uh, when we're talking about a railroaded plot, or a plot railroading the players, we're essentially saying that the players don't have impact on what is happening. Uh, and that's what Michael was saying about taking away the player agency, the player choice, uh, the player decisions that affect the world around them. So on the forums, on social media, uh, in any sort of discussion board, when people are talking about 
uh, the negative aspects of being a game master or a dungeon master. And they're saying, oh, well, you can't railroad your players. Really what they're saying is you shouldn't essentially tell a story without the players have, have, having any impact on the story. That's what we mean when we're talking about railroading a plot. You, as the person running the game, are simply describing all of the events and letting the players step in when you tell them to. When you tell the players, hey guys, there's a fight, now you can fight the goblins. Hey guys, you're now talking to a king, you can talk to the king. Oh, the king sent you here, you have to go here. Oh, you're in a dungeon and you have to find the key, walk around until you find the key. The players aren't choosing to do those actions, you're telling them that they have done those actions. Now, as Michael was saying, there is a degree where that is acceptable, and there is a degree where that is not acceptable. Starting at the very basics, if you don't know how to run a game, if you don't know how to play a game, you kind of have to go railroad. When you buy that first module of a book of how to play a game, that's a very railroad story. And sometimes you have to read it right out of the book. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. Uh, and I think just like any other hobby, uh, it, it's important to recognize that it does not exist in black and white. It, it does not exist in this is always right and this is always wrong. There's a lot of gray area and there's a lot of you have to do what's right for you and your players. As a GM, if you are experienced but your players are not, you kind of have to lead them by the hand and teach them how to role play, how to make choices, how to interact with this pretend world. And if they don't know how to do that, sometimes you have to light up those flashing GM signs and point them in the right direction. Some people might consider that railroading, but sometimes you have to do that. Well, and for me, again, the, the point I want to make is that I don't think it's, I don't even think it should be considered railroading to put your players into a situation. The railroading that I would then have an issue is that you have already decided the resolution of that situation based off of what you want to accomplish. So if you've decided that there are going to be assassins that break into my room at night and try to kill my P my party, my PC, that's not railroading. If you have already decided that upon their dying breath, the assassin will whisper the name of Wilson Fisk so that I can then start tracking down the kingpin. And when they break in, I decide to charm them instead because I don't want to kill them or I try to recruit them or I say, hell, I'll join you. I'll, I want to be an assassin too. And you're like, uh, well, he still attacks you. Now you've railroaded the situation. You've taken my agency away from me and how I deal with the situation you presented because you planned for a fight. And there are still times when that's okay, but those are very, very rare, far and few and far between. And that's what I'm trying to say. The situation that you create as a dungeon master or the game master, that's on you. And that, that, sh that should be organic and part of the story. If I piss off the king, it's fine for the king's guard to come after me. But if you've already decided what's going to happen when the king's guard comes after me and give me no chance to get away, to bribe, to join, to cajole, that's where you've crossed into the territory where you've made the game not fun for me as a player. I'll agree with you there, Michael. The, the point of all of this is what is the end result? Are you letting the players choose how to resolve a situation and move forward? Or are you 
telling them the resolution before it happens and letting them just interact sort of kind of along with it. The best example here is, again, a video game. If you think of any modern role-playing game, uh, you've got cutscenes where you can't really do anything. You just have to watch things happen. And then you get to points where there there might be a a quick-time event or a, a certain event where you have very minor interaction with the events on screen. That's kind of what railroading is. The story is happening, and you're just sort of playing along. There are certainly situations where that has to happen or where it is a necessary tool, but I think as experienced players and experienced GMs, you learn to move away from that. And you learn that as a GM, your job is to simply frame the events, give the players elements, give the players factoids, give the players a foundation, and the player choice is what defines the story and moves the story forward. Uh, this, This is what I truly believe is a social gaming environment, a social storytelling. I, as the GM, am going to say, hey, guys, we're in this world. There's a king who thinks like this. There's an opposing army who thinks like this. Here's your town. There's uh, a tavern. There's a thieves' guild. uh, There's a gladiator arena. You guys start here. Here are the backstories that you have created. Here are the characters that you have created. Here are their places in the world. Here are all the elements of the world. What happens next? Truly letting the players decide what happens next and generating the story for themselves is how a good story evolves socially and organically at the gaming table. Now, my job as a GM, beyond providing those elements, is to interject exciting things. So if the players can't decide what to do, or if the players simply want to do mundane average things and they're getting kind of bored if they're not coming up with good ideas, at that point I can say, okay, well, now the Thieves' Guild are acting up. They're acting oddly. They're becoming more uh, offensive. They're becoming more threatening than they used to be. Then I'm injecting an el- a new element into the world and prompting a reaction. Now the players can decide to ignore it, the players can decide to talk to them, the players can decide to fight them, the players can decide to try to make a bargain with them, but the players are deciding. I'm not telling them, hey, the thieves are getting uppity, and it's your job, Uh, you decide to go fight them. I'm not saying that. But I know what to do if that happens. In my head, I have to be able to react to, oh, okay, the players now want to fight the entire thieves' guild. Okay, how do I make that work? Oh, the players want to negotiate with the thieves' guild. Okay, how do I make that work? Oh, the players want to find a spell to charm the Thieves' Guild. Okay, how do I make that work? That is not railroading. That is giving the players the freedom to make a choice. And and I think the whole point of this discussion is how to make that happen. And ultimately, it's all based on experience. There's no way that you can walk into a game and know how to do that. You have to experiment. You have to do it wrong. And you have to learn from your mistakes. For me, the the secret there is to, again, you want to create interesting situations and then allow your players to interact with them 
And that's where you're really going to create more than the whole. That's where that gestalt sort of idea comes from, that I like to know what my NPCs want, what their motivations are, why they are here. They're not here just because they are providing an opposition to my antagonist. I mean, in a way they are. But in my head, I've made up what they're after. What, you know, what their motivations are, why, why they do this, like, you know, did their parents not love them enough as a child, whatever the case may be. So then when my PCs do something I didn't anticipate, which is often, I just go, okay, well, how would they react to that? Knowing what my NPCs want, what they're after, what resources they have available, now that the PCs have blocked their attempts at getting this thing, what is their likely reaction going to be? And that allows me to continue moving the story forward and create the next situation that then the PCs then, again, react to, and then I react to their reaction, and that's pretty much how the story goes. So when you're crafting your first game, if you don't just go buy a module, which is fine if you do, and you try to run it as best you can, it should include in there somewhere who these NPCs are, what their motivations are, and what they're trying to accomplish, because the the writers of a, of a module know your PCs are going to do something you didn't expect, and the reason they give you that background information is so that you can try to improvise a reaction and then try to steer them back into the path that you want them to be on. You know, at the end of the day, if you expect there to be a, you know, you've already seen that at level 15, there's going to be a grand battle between you and the Kingsguard in the throne room while the uh, illegitimate son of the, of the king on the throne watches as his kingdom crumbles by the fall of your sword upon his men. That's great, but you may never get there because your PCs will probably do something very, very differently. If I would assume they're probably going to shoot the kings in the face with a crossbow from a crowd at level two instead of 15. But they're going to do something crazy. If you don't know what your NPCs want, what their motivations are, what their resources are, and just react to that, that's probably when you're crossing in, over into the railroady thing. And then the last thing that I wanted to say, this is to the players. Suck it up a little bit, okay? Being a DM is very hard, particularly if you're new. And if your DM writes a very railroady campaign, just try to have fun with it. Say, okay, I'll go save the princess. We're here to have fun and, and tell a group story. So if the, if the DM's like, hey, I'm going to write a campaign. You guys are going to start in a small kingdom and you're kind of on friendly terms with the king. And maybe, you know, when he was a young boy, you guys grew up together and he counts on you as friends. Don't make a chaotic, neutral, rogue character who at the first opportunity is going to stab the king in the back and try to take over the throne. There's a type of game where that's really fun, but if everyone else is trying to play the hero and you're playing that guy, you're the one being kind of a jerk here. So my advice, and I mean this with all sincerity, I want you guys to have fun. Try to help your DM out as much as possible. And if they are being a little railroady, just go with it. Just go with it, try to make it fun, and then after the game, say, hey, you know that one moment I kind of felt like I didn't have a choice in the matter, like I kind of felt like you'd already decided how the game was going to end or whatever? But have that conversation outside of the game, talk about ways that maybe it could have gone better. But by far, the, the player side reactions I see on Reddit and other forums are usually when a player wanted to do something that I would consider a jerk move and the DM wouldn't let them, and they're like, oh, they wouldn't let me do what I wanted. They're railroading the game. Not really. They're just trying to keep you from ruining their game. So what are your reaction to that, Caleb? 
in general, I do agree with you. There needs to be a lot of communication at a gaming table before, during, and after a gaming session. If the GM says, hey guys, I really want to try to tell a story like this. Uh, I really want to set up a story like this. That person is, is taking his or her time to run a game for you. And yeah, you, you do need to respect that. There is a certain social contract that we agree to when we sit down at the gaming table. And part of that contract is that we are letting this one person be the leader of the game. And that person gets some authority in saying yes and no and enforcing some rules. That being said, I think it's a very thin line to tread that the GM has the job of, of keeping the game moving forward. And if the GM sees players totally going off track, in that moment, the GM has to decide, okay, do I let the story go off track and run with it? Is there a way to bring it back around? Are the players just exploring and they're trying to get to the solution in their own way? Or are the players just going off the rails and doing whatever they want because they feel like screwing around? Is this a short tangent? Is this uh, a kind of a jerk move? What is really happening here? So the GM kind of has to uh, do a really big sense motive check and figure out what the hell is happening. And there's sometimes in certain contexts when the GM is going to say, yeah, sure, whatever, do do what you want. We'll just make it happen. And there's sometimes when the GM is going to say, well, no, guys, you're trying to save the princess. You're in a dungeon. I'm not going to let you just, you know, leave and start killing people. <laughs> there's no right or wrong answer, but there's certain situations where one answer is more correct than another. For me, like I love the show. Whose line is it anyway? I think uh, Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery, uh, they should be bazillionaires because they make me laugh like almost no one else does. My favorite game is Scenes from a Hat. I will watch that over and over and over again. But imagine that you're watching Whose Line Is It Anyway? And Drew Carey says, okay, now it's time for Scenes from a Hat. And Colin Mockery said, "Yeah, I don't want to play that game. Like that would just screeching fucking halt the story. Everyone's laughing. Everyone's joking. Everybody's having a good time. And then one guy's just like, no, I don't want to play this game. We've all agreed that we're going to play this game. Some some games I like better than others. You know, maybe I really like the Broadway star thing or I like the stand set lean thing. But I'm not good with scenes from a hat. Just suck it up and play that game and get through it. Make the best of it you can. Make other people happy. And then maybe the next game is the game that you really like. That's a good point. I, I mean, that's that goes back to that social contract. You're agreeing to do a thing, do the thing. And if you watch any of the outtakes on Who's Light Is It Anyway, it was always Ryan who was complaining mostly about doing hoedowns. But, you know, he did it. He hated it. And he brought it up in the song half the time about how much he hated it. But he did it. I, I think what we can kind of pull out of this point is that the GM has to play along with the players, and the players has to have to play along with the GM. If the GM is simply saying, you do this, you do that, it's not role-playing. It, it, you're not playing a game. You're, you're just doing what the GM tells you to do. But on, on the other side of that coin, if the players have taken over control 
and they're saying, you know, okay, now we're doing this and we're doing that and we're taking everything over and they're completely hogging the spotlight from the other players and not letting the GM really exercise his or her control, her role as a GM, there has to be a give and take. It can't be completely on one side of the GM screen or the other. And and there's no right way to define that line, and there's no grand rule that says in this situation this person wins and in this situation that person wins it's always going to be case by case sometimes when this is happening as the gm you just have to say guys we're trying to move forward with saving the princess here let's get back on track well and i think this this is just another another advocate for why you should do a session zero because that gives the gm a chance to say guys the, the game that i'm thinking about playing you guys are all playing heroes. And, you know, don't be surprised, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if there is a princess that goes missing early on and you guys are questing to save her. And if everyone at the table is like, oh, God, no, I don't want to do that. That's awful. I would much rather be a band of pirates and I want to be the guy that's pillaging the countryside and, and stealing from the, the noblemen. Okay, you guys got to work that out. Before the game starts, either the DM has to say, okay, that, that sounds fine, let me let me work on that, or the DM's like, you know, I'm really not comfortable running that type of game yet, I'm still new to this, or, or whatever. But that's where you're making that social contract, whether it's written or just implied. At the end of Session Zero, everyone has a character made, and that character needs to fit thematically in with the type of game that you're going to play, or they have to have an agreed-upon digression Okay, you're going to play the one guy that doesn't make sense, but we're doing it for comedic effect or for this reason or for that reason, whatever the case may be. And then when we start the game, the DM's job then is to use the types of motivations that make sense for the characters that are made. If or all the players make characters who are mo motivated by money, then there needs to be a hefty reward. Okay, save the princess. I don't care. Here's a million gold pieces. Save her I will. And then off you go. And then don't be surprised if halfway there they get a better offer. They might change their mind and work for someone else, but that's fine. You're setting up a situation. You're not dictating the outcomes. If they all decide to be heroes full of virtue and they will save the princess because the princess needs saving, great. That They've made your job pretty easy, but you still want to challenge them. You still want to create situations where there is no clear right and wrong answer. So what if it turns out the reason the princess was stolen is because the king made a bad deal with the local goblins and he said he was going to send them meat and it turns out it was rancid meat and half their women and children starved to death. Okay, so now you're put into a moral quandary where the save the princess thing doesn't isn't black and white anymore. It's, it's in the gray. That's still an interesting situation that your PCs have agency within that fit the motivations that they've created. So once again, session zero is ultimately important, I think, to having a successful game, unless you're dealing with very experienced players and a very experienced DM who can kind of do that on the fly. Exactly. That's what I was going to follow up with here, was there's a time and place for a session zero, whether it's at the table, whether it's its own session and you come back next week to play, whether it's a quick 20-minute, hour-long conversation while you build characters, whether it's something you do over email. Uh, there's also a time and place for... Hey guys, I'm running a 10th level campaign. Bring your characters. And you just deal with it. You know? That can happen, and there can be a lot of fun with that because then the GMs 
have to react to something they don't know about. The players have to react to a lot of things that they don't know about. There is a time and place for both types of games. And yeah, you have to be a lot more experienced to do that second type because you have to know a lot about your character. You have to be pretty invested in role-playing. You have to be pretty skilled at reacting to the other people at the table and what the GM is throwing at you. I like playing that type of game. I think there's a lot of fun to be had there because everything is unexpected and it's on one hand a little bit easier to role play because if you as a player don't know something, then your character doesn't know either and it's easier to explore and learn and actually gain knowledge from the checks you make and actually organically come up with, oh, wait a minute, can I figure this out using this thing I know how to do. But that being said, a session zero where we say, hey guys, let's all be pirates. Hey guys, I, I, I'm thinking about writing up a story where we save the princess. Hey guys, what do you want to play? You know, would you like to be heroes? Would you like to be anti-heroes? Do you want to be thieves? What kind of world do you want to play in? You know, digging into some of those world creation guidelines from fate where people are coming up with concepts and elements about the world and figuring out how characters connect to each other and connect different part of the worlds. If you as a GM don't have a clear plan, prompting your players to do part of your job lets them define that opening scene and those opening facts and makes it for a way better story. So we've, we've been on this for a little while, so I think we probably need to wrap this up. So, so I will sum up myself, and I'll let Caleb sum up my summation this way. As the DM, it is your job to create interesting situations, but you have to give the players the agency to interact with those situations as they see fit, which often will be different than what you envisioned, but often it will be better and more entertaining and interesting. So it's not railroading, to set up the fact that an ogre comes into town wanting to kill the players, or the characters, not the players. But it is that point where you then turn it over, much like an improv game where you say, you're the astronaut, you're the housewife, and the kitchen's on fire. Go. At the moment you say go, you're no longer in control of the scene. The players are. And how they interact with everything, How that's your job is just to try to react to it, say just in front of them, and help use the rules to arbitrate, you know, if there's any sort of uh, disagreement about what happens. You can make up anything you want. You can make up the astronaut, the housewife, and the, and the kitchen's on fire. That is completely your job. It is not your job to tell the players how they react to it. At the same time, as the player, if the DM says, okay, you're the astronaut, and you didn't want to be the astronaut, just go with it, at least for that session. Try to make the best of it. Let everybody have fun. And then after the game talk to the DM and say, hey, I would have preferred to have been the housewife or I would have preferred to have been the fire, whatever the case may be. But everyone's there to have fun. And if you're not making, if you're making it harder for everyone to have fun, then maybe that's just not the game for you. Because there is a point where maybe you need to move on. And this is a, a kind of a different topic, but I'll touch on it very quickly. Um, one of our guests, Seth Polanski, who we interviewed for the Of Dyson Men game, he said something that I thought was very powerful and true. Role-playing games are fun. So if you're not having fun, then you're probably doing it with the wrong people. And that could just be because it's a different of style. You know, you want a type of game that the people you play with doesn't want to do. 
That doesn't mean you're wrong. It's just not a good fit. Maybe you should find a group that wants to play the game that you want to play in. Uh, you know, so that's fine. The issue that I found is that there's two there's two different types of groups. There's people who come together to play D&D, and then there are people who are friends who play D&D together. If you're friends who play D&D together, it's harder to be like, I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. Because now you're excluding a friend from an activity. You're not excluding a player from your particular game. That's a separate issue, but you just need to think about it. If you're not having fun, think about that, and then maybe you make a decision on what you need to do. All right, Caleb, how would you wrap up that topic? So in general, the best way to avoid railroading your players is to give them situations and see how they react. Uh, you, As a GM, you want to prompt your players for input at every level of the game happening. You want to avoid telling them what happens in general. This is a, a swinging pendulum that goes from one extreme to another, and your game has to find that sweet spot of where it exists. Neither extreme is right nor wrong, but there is always a certain application where it is correct, given the context. So let's move on. And this is another topic that, again, it, it, it can come a little bit negative. Uh, but this is something I, I saw firsthand at CincyCon. And I had a lot of fun at CincyCon. I really enjoyed the convention. Um, I wish there had been more roleplay-specific stuff there, but um, it's not a roleplay-heavy con. It is included, but that's not its sole purpose. But we had a game that that I played in where one of the players, I'm going to use the term stonewalled, that one of the players stonewalled DM time and time and time again. And it got to the point where it was it was very frustrating for me as as another player at the table and as someone who GMs because I felt like, how, how do I explain this? I feel like the player did it because they were unsure of how to play their character. Like, I don't think they were doing it on purpose. I don't think they were trying to be disruptive at all. I just don't think they were as experienced at role-playing as some of the others because it was mostly like me and my friends and then this one person who got into that game. Uh, and so I may be misreading it, but that, that was my take on it. But essentially what happened is time and time again, the DM would turn to that player and say, okay, what are you doing? And almost invariably, they were doing something that kept them out of the story. And it got it got to the point where the DM was trying to coax them into the story to involve them. And and I felt that was, like at first, I, I felt like, they're, okay, they're trying to get this person out of their shell. I was all for it. Yeah, I want them to have fun. I want them to role play. I want them to have a good time. But eventually it got to the point where in my head, I'm like, just stop asking. Because you are wasting energy and time to try to get this person into the game when clearly they are not going to. So just let them not be involved because you're wasting your time and energy that could be better spent on other parts of the game. So as an example, there was a part where all the characters were in a vehicle and the vehicle was driving. It got to a, a, like a, a location and the DM's like, hey, what do you guys want to do? Pretty much all of us got out of the vehicle and went up to one of two places that were nearby. That person stayed in the vehicle. 
And I'm talking like 45 minutes of game time. We are starting to have adventures. Things are happening. Our characters are doing things. And every time the DM would go back and say, okay, what are you doing? I'm going to stay in the vehicle. Okay. It got to the part where the adventures were kind of over and we were going to sleep. What are you doing? I'm going to stay in the vehicle. Again, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well or not. I don't know what else to say. But essentially, the DM eventually had to say, well, are you going to sleep in the vehicle or are you going to go into the house and get a room? Um, I guess I'll just sleep out here. And that's like, okay, fine. You know, and it wasn't, I don't feel like it was done for like an interesting reason. Like, hey, I'm playing a character who's aloof or, you know, forgetful. I just kind of feel like maybe they didn't know how to role play, which again is fine. But I wanted to ask your thoughts on this. This is We have not talked about this. This was not something we did a pre-meeting talk about. How would you as a DM and or as a player deal with that situation when you have a player either because of lack of knowledge or for whatever reason just doesn't want to be a willing participant in the adventure the DM's trying to run? Hmm. Well, I guess ultimately this is probably a situation that is typically going to happen at a con or at a gaming store. I would assume, for the most part, if I am putting together a home game and we're all agreeing to sit down at the table or, or jump into a, uh, a streaming video service to play a game, everyone is going to be on board to play. Uh, with my friends, if, if I'm saying, hey, you got... everybody's having an adventure and... Player X is sitting in the vehicle with his arm crossed. If I'm playing with my group of friends, I'm just going to call him out. I'm going to say, dude, what's going on? We're having this adventure. What's wrong? But in a convention situation, at a game store situation, when you might be playing with people you don't know, ugh, man, there, there's, this is, it's an uncomfortable situation and there's no right answer. I think a lot of it depends on your confidence as a GM uh, it, and your skill as a GM. If, if you can read the situation and your take on it is the player is just not knowing what to do and not comfortable with the group at the table, maybe you call for a break. Hey, everybody, take five, go to the bathroom, I need to grab a soda. And then you grab that person and say, hey, man, I noticed things are a little bit weird at the table. I want to do what I can to help you have fun. What's going on? Do, do you not like someone? Is there bad blood? Uh, do you just not get some of the rules of the game? You're here to play. I want to help you play. What can I do for you? Maybe taking them away from the group for a second, but not making it obvious gives them a second to say, oh, yeah, I'm just not paying attention. This is going on. I don't know what I'm doing, blah, 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 blah. And then depending on what they say is is the answer you have to come up with. If you can't take a second like that, though, if you have to figure that out, I, I think at some point you invest the effort to try to bring them into the game. Again, you have to read the table. You have to read the person. If you feel it's just that that one player doesn't know what's happening and doesn't feel comfortable trying to role play or doesn't know how to role play, try to spoon feed them. Try to give them the prompts. Maybe if there's someone at your game table who you know, uh, you give them the nod and you try to communicate to them, hey, help this person out. Uh, pass them a note, you know, do something like that. Send them a text. Try to spoon feed this player some real good situations. 
and just flat out say, hey, you know, in general, uh, a, the fighter you're playing is probably going to want to participate with this adventure. I, I think he would get out of the car and start fighting the goblins. That's up to you, but he, he probably would help out and, and want to get some treasure. Would you like to join the fight? Would you like to have been following people along? The, the, this is a, this is just a, a tough situation, and there's there's no good solution. Right, and I think you read it right right off the beginning. This is a situation that's likely only going to happen at a convention because if you're with your friends, then you'll just be like, "Hey, dude, what the f? You know what's going on? Are you just in a bad mood tonight? Should we just not play tonight and do something else?" But when you're dealing with strangers, that's where things can get somewhat awkward. And as a longtime player DM. I try to walk the line in games that I've played at conventions or like a, 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 new, a new group where I want to be helpful and I want to help people learn how to play their character. If they have questions, I want to make sure I'm helping the DM answer them. But I don't want to become that guy who's like the backseat role player and tells them what to do and how to do things. So I try not to be too helpful unless asked by either the player or the DM. So my normal response is just to emulate the type of role playing that I think they will enjoy. So when, you know, I like over role play, like I, you know, I really get into it and I try to do my funny voices or, you know, try to do crazy things and make people laugh. That's, you know, kind of my thing. And I just think I was surprised because I, I would have expected that if that was the situation about an hour to two hours into that game, they would have started to loosen up. You know, the rest of us were all role playing. We were, getting into our characters. We were doing these silly things. And I thought, okay, this person just needs to loosen up a little bit. But they never did. Like, never did they ever loosen up. All the way up, right up until the very end of the game. And I think that's when it's, it switched from being, like, sympathetic. Like, oh, this person's just shy or they don't want to do it. To aggravating, like, you're making this game worse for everybody because you're not helping the DM at all. And... You know, again, that was just my read on the situation. I don't know what they were thinking. We didn't talk after, but I really liked your suggestion of you take a take a smoke break. Uh, everybody take five, and then you pull them aside and just ask them, like, "Hey, are you new? Do you not know what to do? You don't know what to, how to play? You know, let's, maybe we just quickly change your character, and rather than playing what you're playing, now you're this thing that you would be more comfortable playing, or you'd have more fun playing." I mean, but is there a point where you just stop as the DM? You just, you know, you basically wait for them to say, hey, can I do this so that you're not taking time and energy away from the other players who are actively engaged? Yeah. And that goes back to your experience as a GM of being able to read the table and play off your players. Uh, If you are investing the time into this one person to the extent that you are not paying attention to the other players or not delivering a good gaming experience, then you need to be able to recognize that in yourself and find that balance. In a convention setting where you this might happen, you expect people to want to participate in the games because they've probably paid to do it. So you are walking to the table with the expectation everyone at this table wants to participate. Now, that might be totally wrong, because maybe this one person who's not participating didn't get into the game he or she wanted to. Maybe this was a backup game. Maybe they got dragged along by a friend or family member. Maybe they wanted to win a prize in a tournament and they didn't, and now they have to play this game and their head's not in it. I mean, there's a zillion different reasons as to what's happening. 
in this type of situation, as you are setting up the game, you can take a minute and say, hey everybody, I'm Caleb, I've been running this type of game for a long time, I'm really excited to, to be leading this game here today, I expect everyone to participate with some good ideas, I want a lot of role-playing, or... Hey guys, if you're not comfortable doing a lot of role-playing, I don't care. I just want to have fun. If you want to narrate in third person, that's cool. But if you're the kind of person who wants to jump in with voices and really get into it, I'll be there with you. You know, in a convention game like this, take five minutes, ten minutes, and do a little introduction. I mean, you don't have to do the whole, let's go around the table and say who we are and what our experience level is. Um, but you can try to set the tone. And you can just flat out ask people, hey, do you guys, have you played this game before? Do you have an idea of how you want this module to run? Do you want me to go real dark and straight role-playing? Do you want to play it a little bit lighter? What kind of, what's your comfort level? You know, and maybe that's a way you could try to head it off at the pass. But sometimes, yeah, you just have to say, I've done what I've done. This person, for whatever reason, is not in this at the moment, but I need to make sure everyone else at the table is having a good time. So adjust your resource management. Though I would say as, as someone who in my previous jobs did a lot of training and facilitating, there is a reason why every corporate function you've ever gone to starts with one of those silly icebreakers where you go around the room and say your name and how long you've been with the company and one, you know, one thing about yourself that nobody knows but is work appropriate. Because they work, they get people talking, and psychologically, they put everyone on the same level. We're all here to learn. We're all students. We're all equal footing, blah, blah, blah. So I will be doing that. Now, at, at CincyCon, both games I ran were with people I already knew or we had been chatting, so it was different. But my plan at, at Gen Con is to do that, go around the room. My name is Michael. I've been DMing for 28 years. Uh, you know, this game is going to be heavy role-playing. I want you guys to really blah, 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 and go and ask people to go around the room and do the same thing. It takes five minutes, but it, it's different when you just like cold start and you try to jump into role playing at, you know, at Gen Con, there's probably going to be a lot of role players there that can do that. But again, you don't know who's at your table. You don't know if someone did, like you said, they didn't get the thing they wanted and yours was the only thing open at that time. So it's basically you or a nap. That might be what you're dealing with at Gen Con. So I think it's worth that five minutes to go around the table. So that would be my advice is to do that. Yeah, both you and I in our corporate day jobs ha ha deal with a lot of that kind of stuff, with training new people, with big corporate meetings, uh, and trying to bring people into active participation. Uh, so I think a, a quick conversation of, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I want to do with this game. Are we on the same page? That's establishing that social contract for those four hours that you're playing together. And just flat out say, hey guys, I'm comfortable running heavy role-playing. I'm comfortable running light and funny role-playing. What, what do you guys want to do? How do you guys want to do this? Do, do you guys know each other at the table? Are we all strangers? I mean, if you're running a game and everyone knows each other already, that's going to require a different type of running. If two people out of the group of six know each other and everyone else is strangers, or if everyone is a stranger, you've got to adjust and adapt to that kind of style. So I think the best way to avoid this situation is to talk about it up front, establish the relationships, establish the expectations of the game, and lay the groundwork for that social contract before you even start rolling dice. 
Agreed. So as always, we will throw it back to our audience. You know, I've not been that to that many conventions. I haven't ran other than CincyCon. I've never run at a convention. Again, both of those were with basically people I already knew. So if there's anybody out there listening who has run a lot of convention games and you've seen this or dealt with this before, please weigh in. Send us an email, send us a tweet, uh, join us on the forums. Uh, we can start a thread if we don't have one already for this particular topic. And uh, give us some thoughts and advice on uh, on what you've done or what you've seen done and how you would handle it. And I do want to give a quick shout out here uh, for our forums. We've had one, uh, we've had a couple people that have started to join us there and, and be more interactive. And that, again, just brings a smile to my face. Uh, but one person in particular, and I don't know if it's Harlinsky or Harlan Sky or Harlinsky, uh, but uh, whoever you are, you know who you are. Thank you so much. You have been very, very active on the forums and interacting with me. Uh, and you've had a load of uh, advice and information and uh, feedback. And I really, really appreciate it. All right, so the last thing I wanted to get to tonight before we wrap up with our background segment and then read some new reviews is we got another piece of feedback back on our lucky segment. Like we must have really hit a hot topic on that one. Like we just that's we probably got more feedback and interaction with that topic than anything. Friend of the show, Randy, who's also one of our patrons, he of the green shirt, he really took this to heart and he sent me a pretty detailed email. His thought was that if someone is really lucky, then there's a chance that they may not have necessarily studied or applied themselves quite as um, arduously as someone who had to fight for things that they wanted. So he actually came up with a mechanical way that a person that wanted to be quote-unquote lucky in 5th edition D&D would actually get less points to buy stats representing the fact that they just weren't as developed because they've always had their luck to compensate. And it was a way to have someone be lucky, but just basically be even with someone else. So it wasn't truly an advantage. It was just a different play style. Like, yeah, my guy's not as strong as your guy, but I'm just lucky, so it's okay. Or my guy's not quite as, uh, you know, doesn't have many skill points as you have, but it's okay because I'm just lucky. So first of all, I thought that was an interesting idea. So uh, you being the crunch master, I kind of felt like you would probably th- be more intrigued by that where he, and I think I have the email, I can send it to you. I, eventually I'd like to post it uh, where he broke down the m- number of points that you get for a point by and he compensated by giving them less. Same thing with skill points. But then on top of that, I think what he said is that every, they basically got advantage on every thing that they do, but they compensate by having lower numbers across the board. So what do you think about that as a way to uh, emulate a lucky character? I think it's a pretty interesting idea. I am looking at the email. Randy sent it to me as well. It is one of those things, though, and I think we touched on this in that show. If you are coming up with a house rule for invoking or enforcing this lucky-unlucky concept, it's got to be something that everybody at the table is on board with. Uh, you don't want to just have one player being this abnormal exception uh, because it's not going to be balanced and people won't have fun. So I think if this is something you want to run with and the numbers that Randy came up with are really cool and uh, I think they're balanced, uh, I think they provide a good uh, hearty feeling of what lucky versus unlucky really means – this is something you want to present to your players and say, hey, guys, I want to try this house rule. And as we're approaching character creation, I'm going to give you guys the options. You can either be a lucky or unlucky character. 
and then we'll move into uh, race and class selection as normal, but the underlying foundation will affect that choice. If everyone's on board with the, the experiment, go for it. Um, I would like to actually try these rules in a one-shot or a, a real short campaign just to see how they work. Uh, I think with Randy's permission, we could certainly post them on the forum and get some uh, some player feedback. So, Randy, if you're listening, let us know. And the, the only thing for me, like my idea originally, though, was to have someone who who became exceptional because of their luck. Uh, though I think at the end of that conversation, we kind of agreed that it makes more sense to do it on a short-term basis rather than a long-term basis because of that. But I still like the idea of someone being lucky, and that makes them better than most other people. So the idea of just compensating for making luck just a way to kind of get to the same number mathematically probably makes more sense. Uh, Balance-wise certainly makes more sense. But to me, it doesn't invoke the same feeling that I was trying to get to by having a burst of luck make things easier for me or better for me. So I think, again, what he's trying to do is create a new character archetype that makes sense and is balanced, then yes, absolutely. But if you're going to do something for like three sessions, your character's really lucky for some reason, I want them to be straight better for those three sessions. Well, at that point, you're just talking about two different definitions two different expressions of what it means to be lucky versus unlucky Uh, i think what randy provided was a very sound grounded logical approach to the application of those two terms in a rules driven environment what you're talking about michael is absolutely possible as well it's just a different connotation. You want to see those those big, cool, cinematic moments, and you want to have that impact of it randomly happening at the table and surprising everybody, and that cool factor that comes from the unexpected, oh, look, I succeeded anyway kind of thing. That can definitely happen, too. It's just two different sides of of the story. But anyways... Thank you, Randy. I appreciate the fact that, A, you listened to the episode, and, two, it struck a chord with you, and you wanted to interact, and you took the time to do that. We really appreciate it. And yeah, let us know, and if you have no issues, we'll throw it up on the forum and let some other people look at it and dissect it and maybe uh, come up with something that we could play test in the future. So uh, let us move on, and we are going to go into our background segment. I mean, it's one that we've gotten quite a lot of positive feedback about, and we want to continue that trend. Uh, We don't have a real title for it, but basically this is where we take a class and a background, and we kind of mash them together and see what we can come up with as an interesting or unusual or just fun way to play that combination. And we actually have a special guest joining us for just this segment. Matthew, say hello. Hello. So Matthew is no stranger to the podcast, but unfortunately Matthew is not able to join us for the entirety of tonight's episode, but he did want to stick around for this one because he has a great, those are his words, not mine, (laughs) great idea for what you could do with our uh, combo tonight, which is a druid with the sailor background. So Matthew, how about you go first and give us your idea? (laughs) First of all, I don't remember saying great. Let's just get that out on the table right there. I don't remember saying great. Second, it was implied. I want someone else to go first because I just want to make sure I had the right idea. Because all I can think about in my head is Eddie Murphy, Barbarian, and I'm like, how do 
it's not this like <laughs> I don't have that idea. It's similar. Okay. So anyway, fine. I'll go first because I'm not afraid of anything. So a sailor druid. Now, what I was thinking for this was that if you had a druid of like a cove, so say his home was like the cove down the street, he would be a uh, lot, you know, friends with dolphins and, and turtles and iguanas and where, I don't know, I don't know where your cove is. Your cove could be in Antarctica, in which case he's friends with penguins and elephant seals and you don't, he's going to have weird animal forms. But if he's got this cool cove that's kind of tropical, he could turn into a dolphin and then that's like his animal thing that's a dog type hit point level. And yeah, that's what I thought. And I was thinking, if you didn't want to do that, and you wanted more of a a weird, like, um, a vengeful uh, druid sailor, you can make him, like, a pirate in the sense that he is against all, like, people who come to his uh, his domain, and he goes after him as a crocodile. So he's like Captain Hook, but the crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Works for me. Now someone else go, so I would be like, oh, that's what I was supposed to say. <laughs> Well, I don't have a super cool movie-themed answer for this week. This one was suggested to us by one of our listeners. I do think it's an interesting combination, though. And so so my thought is, what exactly does a druid do? And, you know, from the lore and from the classes, basically they are a protector of, of the wilderness. But if you're a sailor, then you're probably not staying put around where uh, you normally would think. So you got to change your concept a little bit. Uh, So certainly you could have an island with maybe a small grove of trees on it that are very powerful, some sort of ancient site. And so even though you're still a druid of the forest, you just happen to protect it by being on boats that surround it. Um, I know there are places in, in our ocean where two different oceans meet and you can actually see a very clear delineation uh, because of the like the water temperature, so you'll see like the dark blue water against the light blue water. So maybe somewhere out in the ocean, there is a small, you know, maybe it's a square mile section of ocean that's slightly colored, uh, where there used to be a shrine, or maybe there's a shrine on the bottom of the ocean there, and it's very clear that this is a different place, and that's what you protect, and you sail around and protect it from different enemies and forces. I like the the idea of a sailor druid being the person who interacts, as you were saying, Matthew, with uh, more aquatic types like your sea elves or your Sahagan. You know, these are races that are somewhat thought of sometimes as uh, adversarial. This is the person that can negotiate or navigate travel through those areas or those protected cities. So I don't, again, I don't have like a cool movie tie-in, but I do like the idea of having someone who's on a ship but has a strong connection to nature if it's just going to be, you know, water elemental, you could have like a, a maybe there's a like an area where the plane of elemental water is breaking through into our world, and that is what you're protecting, or that's what you're in charge of. Um, I don't know. Again, I I don't know that I have a great answer for this time. What about you, Caleb? What are you thinking of if you have a sailor druid? Well, first off, if we have to go back to the movie references, you're missing the really obvious water world. Aquaman? Yeah. I, mean, I was thinking Aquaman. A, Cartoon Aquaman with the... Woo, 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 yeah. Woo. I mean... I, Meanwhile, I, that's the Hall of Justice. <laughs> right. So, yeah, Aquaman, for better or worse definition, is essentially a druid. 
So that is one way you could absolutely use that concept. I, I think what we are focused on and what's causing the difficulty here is that we think Druid is a protector. A, a Druid has an area that he monitors, governs, sticks to. And that certainly works for a druid. But if we expand our story of a druid a little bit, we can probably figure something else out. If we take some inspiration from the archetypes in the 5th edition handbook, uh, you've got the spellcasting druid, who is attuned to the world, the environment that he is in, and from that environment he draws his strength. And then on the other hand, we have the shapeshifting druid. So we have the druid who is one with the natural element around him, and he shifts into forms that inhabit that element. Both of those fit Ocean Sailor pretty easily. If we look at the spellcasting druid, very simply, he's a sailor who has magical talent, but it developed out in the ocean. Maybe he was blessed by a water spirit. Maybe he has some sort of family ties to a vast underwater city that has been lost to modern civilization. Uh, maybe he was a pirate and they found some sort of weird relic and it gave him these weird powers that he's learning about. That could easily be uh, the shape-shifting one as well. You know, someone who evolved a magical ability to survive and he survives by shifting into different aquatic beasts. This could be the, the person from that lost civilization that has come up to the surface world to explore, but he, he shifts into aquatic creatures to mask his presence when he's observing enemies or, uh, or people he's trying to study and learn from. I'm of the opinion that you don't always have to have a crazy good story element for a background and class combo. So if you just want to be a pirate or a sailor and have some cool nature magic powers, go for it. No, and I think that that's a very good point to bring up. And and I think we've we've had success on the last couple because we did come up with what were pretty interesting and story rich concepts. But one of the things about backgrounds that I want people to make sure they understand, and I've started to see some issues with this when I see people that are doing new backgrounds online, they're creating their own, is the concept of a background is the thing that you did before you became an adventurer. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you are currently a sailor who is also a druid. You are a druid that was once a sailor. So that does give you a little bit of flexibility, but you can still create an interesting background. So what was it about your life? As you said, you found something, you found a relic. Very, very, you know, very easily, uh, there are plenty of stories, pirate tales and such, where they find a, an island that can't be found and there's some vast treasure on it. You could do the same story, but rather than finding a treasure, you find an ancient druidic grove of trees and an ancient druid who's dying, and much like uh, the alien Green Lantern, passes on the torch and says, okay, you found us. You are now the one that must protect this place. And one of the ways that you can protect it is to leave and make sure no one finds it so you stay away from it, but you, you, know, you always have it in the back of your mind. So you could be a druid in a city who used to be a sailor, and that still gives you an interesting way that you can interact with fishmongers and um, other travelers, that kind of thing. Uh, like I said, I, I don't have like a super cool concept, though Aquaman and Waterworld work. 
Uh, but just remember, folks, that when you're talking about your background, that's the thing you used to do. It's not the thing that you necessarily currently do. Yeah, uh, using that idea for a background, as a sailor, you could have seen the uh, environmental destruction of the land. And when you came back to port at some point, uh, this destruction you had witnessed had bothered you so much that you decide to seek out people who can protect nature. So you go in search of the druids and you find them. One of the older concepts of druids in fantasy worlds and Dungeons and Dragons was that there were circles of druids and there was only like seven of them. And you had to earn your way into that circle as a master druid to learn all the secrets of the druidic class. So you could have that as part of your story. Maybe you felt this calling at a young age, couldn't find them, so you became a sailor to explore the world so that you could find the druids. So you're developing your druid as you're sailing around, uh, which I know is a bit off topic of the background being your actual background. But it's just another way that you could actually put them together. So with, with all that, Matt, have you thought of any other ways that you could put a druid and a sailor together or, or update your initial idea? I mean, the only thing I can update my initial idea with is uh, fans of the show know that I love Animorphs and uh, that my druids need to turn into all the animals under the sun. So I just really like the idea of a druid turning into an orca and just like eating bad guys. That, that's my thing. That's my that that That's why I want to be a druid. I want to be a druid so I can turn into animals. And for me, a sailing druid should have at least a preference towards somewhat aquatic animals. Sea turtle. Yeah. One of the big things with druids is you always stereotypically picture that lone guy in the woods who's kind of crazy, talks to animals, and has all this nature magic. You can mess with that stereotype a little bit. The druid can be the brute. The druid can be the muscle in the in the party. And he can be this badass guy who turns into giant animals that eats everybody. So absolutely, uh, you can have a druid who is focused on transforming into whales and sharks and craziness under the water. Hell yeah. Yeah, and the, and the pirates or the sailors, they hired him because, hey, that Steve over there, he transforms into whales and eats shit. We need to pay Steve to come with us. I actually thought about a uh, a druid sailor that was slightly based on um, Moby Dick, where the druid is this uh, avatar of, like, you know, the sea. So he is this huge sperm whale, this big, huge sperm whale, and he is just terrorizing this whaling fleet, and he gets harpooned bad. So he gets hurt, and... Because he's a druid, you know, he knows he can't be a whale forever and definitely doesn't want to die as a whale. So somehow he finds his way to the shore, turns back into his, you know, um, bipedal self and wakes up with like amnesia with a wound somewhere on his body and a harpoon there. And he's like, I have no idea how. So he picks up the harpoon. He's like, well, this must be mine. And then that's how you would have a, a level one sailor druid who used to be an ass kicker. He might not even know he's a druid at this point. He might he might be a quote unquote fighter. Yeah. I feel I feel like he'd find out he was a druid pretty quick. Like the starfish would be looking at him going, Are you okay, Jim? And he'd be like, Who the hell's Jim? Why are the starfish <laughs> talking to me? 
Well, you actually bring us into a pretty interesting tangent there that we might not want to get into tonight, which is the idea of how to play a character with amnesia and how that might impact multiclassing. But one of my all-time favorite games that I got to play in, I played as an amnesiac. I didn't know anything about my character. I didn't even have a character sheet. My DM had it, and I just tried to learn stuff about myself as I played, and it uh, it was pretty freaking awesome. I I think that might have to be for another on show. A different show. <laughs> I agree that that is for another time. <laughs> so Matthew, we thank you for your contributions tonight. Uh, as always, we will throw it back to our listeners. I'm going to have uh, Ryan throw up a forum for uh, for this particular topic. Probably I'll just have one for all the different backgrounds so people can use it to weigh in themselves on any of the ones we've already done, as well as anything we may have missed here or uh, future suggestions for a future show. So, uh, Matthew, thank you very much. And we are going to wrap up the episode by Caleb not awkwardly reading some new iTunes reviews. All right, guys, so we have three brand new five-star reviews on our iTunes page. Uh, Again, thank you so much for everyone who has taken the time to give us a rating and give us some feedback. We really do love hearing the feedback from you guys. And, of course, every five-star review moves us up in the rankings and makes it easier for people who are doing random searches on iTunes or through any podcast aggregate sort of website search engine doohickey to find us so thank you so much uh to everybody here let's knock these out uh the first one we have came for the actual play stayed for the table talks from user linktip 105 that's the best way i can pronounce that i apologize now there's not a lot of vowels in there which makes it kind of hard but i like it I enjoy reading actual plays or after-action reports, and I thought I would try out into podcasts. After a brief search, I came across the RPG Academy and listened to a few of their campaign series. I became hooked after a few episodes and started listening to more of their work. They are well-spoken, intelligent, and funny guys that have a clear grasp of what tabletop games are about. Michael and Caleb put fun first, and they seem to be having a blast in every episode. I hope you guys keep putting out these great episodes because I will definitely be listening. And lastly, we have a review titled The 5E Campaign from user the Dude Abides Double Zero. Watch out. He's got a beverage. It it tied the room together. It really ties the room together, and this review really ties the show together. Really good stuff. The DM shines in these stories, and the characters play their characters wonderfully, flaws and all. In fact, some of the best moments of the campaign are those moments created from a character embracing his flaws. Really good, fun stuff. Well, uh, as Caleb already said, thank you guys so very much. I know we we ask a lot for the reviews. Uh, It really does make a difference in, in our ratings uh, on iTunes and the likelihood that other people will, A, find us, and two, give us a listen. You know, the more five-star reviews they see, the more likely they are to to try us out, and hopefully they will stick around as well. So once again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for taking the time to write us a review. It means a lot. So that's it for me. Caleb, do you have any final words before we wrap this episode up? No, I think we are good. Hit us up on the forums. Hit us up on social media. Uh, bear with us through the Akatacon 
uh, alerts and announcements. Just buy a ticket, show up, and you will see it was all worthwhile. Absolutely. All right. Caleb, thank you so much. Guys, thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Hey, guys. This is Michael. Just wanted to jump in here for a quick second before we end the show and let you know that the RPG Academy Network has decided to put on an online GMing panel. So what this means is that all the podcasts and sites that are affiliated with the RPG Academy Network, which of course would be Caleb and I with the RPG Academy, Devin and Christopher from the Sharkbone Podcast, RPG Gamer Dad from the RPG Gamer Dad Podcast, Rowett over at GamersPlaying.com, and our new friend Kevin Smith over at Melvin Smith's Geekery, are going to get together online, probably through Twitch or maybe Google+, Plus. we're not sure yet, and basically make an open forum. We're thinking it will be aimed more towards GMing advice, but certainly we will answer any legitimate questions that we get. So I just wanted to break in here and uh, let you guys know that we are looking at doing this because uh, we're going to try to do it in late June, which is not that far away. So we wanted to get the word out. So please, if you are interested in joining us, let us know. Hit one of us up on social media. And uh, if you are not going to be able to actually attend when we have it, which right now we're looking at doing it on Saturday, June 27th, around 6 p.m. Eastern Time, send us in some questions and stuff and we'll uh, maybe we'll talk about it anyway. And the goal will be to release the audio as a podcast on one of the podcasts affiliated with us or maybe even all of them. So that's it. Sorry for the interruption, and now on to the close. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG. Our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google+. Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening, and as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>